You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, let's get started. Uh, as I said, this is the class for people who don't like crowds uh, today. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We got two that could leave. Uh, I'm joking. Uh, Breakfast on the beach had seven disciples and Jesus, making eight. Uh, which, by the way, eight is a number for the resurrection in the early church, which is kind of interesting. We're in John 21. I'm projecting you past uh, past Easter. Um, uh, and the the conversation that Jesus had after his resurrection. Let's begin with prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for this body of believers. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the discussion that's going on upstairs. We thank you, Lord, for Fleming Rutledge and for her commitment to you and for the voice that you have given her uh over especially these last few years where people are discovering uh, your gift in her. Please guide our conversation now together uh, on John 21. Uh, it's just so good to see DeWitt and Layton and uh, have them here. We thank you for answered prayer over their time in Germany and pray for your continued blessing. Together we praise you in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. John 20 is a beautiful conclusion to the book of John, to the Gospel of John. It's really complete. You have Jesus returning, appearing to Mary Magdalene, and then to the disciples, and then that wonderful concluding discussion with Thomas. Um, And this is how the 20th chapter of John finishes. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You can't get a better conclusion than that. The gospel's done. Uh, But then why chapter 21? Why, after such a fitting and appropriate conclusion to the gospel, do we have an additional sort of epilogue chapter? Well, I would suggest to you that the reason is that John gives us a picture of the ordinariness of living into the resurrection. The very fact that the disciples go home to Galilee and go back to fishing, and in the midst of that ordinariness, meet the risen Lord Jesus, And that conversation that Jesus has with Peter, I think, is extraordinary. And so what I'd like us to see, kind of the thesis for this, is this extraordinary living into the resurrection takes place in very ordinary setting. In the day-to-day life uh, of breakfast on the beach. Uh, So chapter 21 of John, this is where I'm going to begin reading. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee. Uh, And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, 
Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and then two others of the disciples who go unnamed. Surely John knew them. Uh, it's been suggested that the two unnamed disciples are good stand-ins for all of us. Um, it's not narrowed down specifically to, uh, to seven names, but two are there that... And two is often, especially in the book of Revelation, is used for something of the totality of the biblical witness because you needed a witness that confirmed the witness. And so that two may be actually significant. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out, got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking... Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, now that's a debatable word there. Um, the only place where this word is used is in John. It's used in John 13 and it's used in 1 John. It doesn't take place anywhere else. Uh, children, for for a man on shore to be calling out to fishermen in their boats and say, children, I think in a Western understanding is just the wrong word. Now, the NIV translates it's friends. Uh, I think it's the, the slant is a term of endearment, but I don't think it's a, a term of diminishment. You kids out there. I don't think any disrespect or any sense of uh, the person on the beach is somehow claiming to be senior and older and more mature or anything like that. So I, I don't know. Uh, they have literally translated it children because that's the term that's used and it's defined that way in John 13 and 1 John uh, 2. But I don't know as if that's the word that would fit our consciousness as an equivalent. Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him with one word. No. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, now, this is John's oblique way of talking about himself. And any of the disciples, I think, could have framed it this way, as a disciple for whom Christ loved. I don't think John is in any way implying, I'm loved more than anybody else here. Uh, it's like in our family, we had a joke that uh, of the three kids, that they were all loved the best. Uh, you know, in dialogue with all of us together, at, uh, I would say, or Virginia would say, well, well of course we love you the best uh, in front of the others. Uh, but it was almost a way of speaking endearingly to the whole of the family. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it's the Lord, because of the fantastic catch. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea, and the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, 
with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went abroad and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. That's going to be an issue. Why the number? Why a specific number of fish? And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. We'll stop there. You see under the introduction in the outline, a line from Nietzsche, uh, you have to look more redeemed if I'm going to believe in your Redeemer. What does it look like to believe in the resurrection, to receive the Redeemer, to be marked by the Redeemer? I doubt if Nietzsche would have been very pleased with the outcome of a faithful, mature Christian believer. Uh, he would have not found that figure uh, very attractive at all. So uh, it's ironic that he would say, you'll have to look like your redeemer for me to believe. Uh, let's, I've covered two and three. Let's go down to the representative disciple. This conversation that Jesus is going to have with the disciples, of course, focuses on Peter. That begins in verse 15. Uh, and Mark's message this morning focused on Peter as well. Arguably, Peter may have been more exciting, more charismatic, uh, more inspiring before the resurrection than after. He certainly factors into the conversation in the Gospels all the time. Wherever you have a list of disciples, his name leads the list. Remember, as and Mark drew this out this morning, he's the first one to confess. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter's the first one to speak up and say, let's build three shelters, one for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for Jesus. Uh, in the foot washing scene, it's Peter. None of the other disciples respond at all other than receive, but it's Peter who says, you're not going to wash my feet. Uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, it's Peter who whips out the sword or a knife and cuts off an ear of one of the um, arresting uh, guards. Uh, it's Peter who says in Matthew 26, even if all fall away, I will not, in a kind of categorical, absolute declaration. So Peter is perceived to be often as you think about the Gospels and you think about the disciple, he's kind of the representative disciple. He is the person who kind of speaks up on behalf of the disciples when things are questioned or in dialogue. So this conversation is kind of not just about Peter, but it's about disciples. And I feel this particularly keenly. I teach pastoral theology. I teach people who are preparing to be pastors. And this is one of the favorite ordination texts for pastors to be, John 21. And I'm sensitive to that because I do not think 
that the thrust of the passage is directed to, quote, formal pastors. I think the thrust of this passage is to all people who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And that fits with the thesis that this is an extraordinary scene within the ordinary. Breakfast on this beach. So before the resurrection, Peter is a man of action and charisma, uh, first among equals. And we're going to see a kind of transformation in Peter in the light of this encounter with Jesus. See on your outline, a modest meal. The Gospel of John ends with breakfast on the beach followed by a conversation. The disciples have left Jerusalem. They've returned to their homes in Galilee. Seven of them go fishing. And all seven are going to be radically changed by this uh, encounter. And on the beach, as we've read, Jesus has a charcoal fire going. He's roasting some fish. He's hosting. Once again, he's hosting. Uh, We have seen... uh, the importance in these last six weeks together of the importance of meals and so much that has transpired in the encounter with Jesus over mealtime. It's interesting how the early church got a hold of this, though. Uh, Under number D, supersizing, uh, this may be the most criticized fishing trip of all time. So interesting how commentators have been critical of Peter and the disciples for going fishing. Uh, They quote this, uh, you know, the text that he who has put his hand to the plow and turns back is not fit for the kingdom of God. It's just interesting how this act has been spiritualized negatively by so many commentators. I don't see any problem at all. They're fishermen. They got to eat. They go fishing. There's nothing negative connotated in the gospel about this. Uh, They're going back to their regular jobs. How interesting, having all that they have gone through, all that they have, uh, all that has transpired in their lives, and yet they find themselves out on the Sea of Galilee fishing. Now, that should be some encouragement to you. You have come to Christ. And you can actually go to the office and live your life for Christ in that seemingly mundane, secular office setting, comparable to the disciples going fishing on the Sea of Galilee. What is meant by the faith in Christ, in the Lordship of Jesus Christ, is not abandoning everything that's normal, abandoning normal relationships, abandoning jobs, abandoning work. Uh, It's the infusion of living into the resurrection in the light of that ordinary life. So far from it being wrong for them to go fishing, it's really quite natural for them to go fishing. And in the midst of that, Jesus shows up. Augustine, though, uh, said we've got to find something more in this passage. And uh, that section of uh, supersizing it spiritually. For, For Augustine, the seven disciples 
the significance of the number meant that they represented the total church, seven being uh, a symbol for perfection and completion. Uh, The sea was a picture of the world. Uh, The shore was a picture of the end of the world. Uh, The fish were uh, the saints, 153. Interesting what he did with that number. 153. Ten represented the Ten Commandments. Seven represented the Holy Spirit. Seventeen. You get one, if you add up from one to seventeen, you get 153. One plus two, three, three plus four, four plus five. If you go consecutively, one through 17, you get 153. Now, that's a kind of spiritual calculus that I don't think we're encouraged to do. But Augustine, now, I, I say that word like he's a familiar person. He may not be very familiar to you at all, and I would understand that he probably is unfamiliar. But Augustine is in the 300s, and one of our principal theologians from which Luther and Calvin and the, both the, the Continental as well as the British Reformation drew from because of his emphasis on grace and the theology of grace. And, of course, his confessions, uh, those are fairly well known. Um, so Augustine factors in, and just how he takes this passage is kind of uh, instructive. He didn't stop there with 153. Uh, the roasted fish was a symbol of the suffering Christ. Uh, the bread was a symbol of the bread of life. So he's trying to infuse all of this meaning into the passage. And my point would be, no, the meaning's not there. The meaning is not there in a kind of spiritualized uh, uh, cast of this passage. The meaning is there in its ordinariness. Jesus shows up in that ordinary setting. Um, and then this conversation in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Now, do you think that Peter was expecting this conversation? Uh, look, you know, there's been two other encounters with the risen Lord, and it's never come up, his denials. And I wonder if Peter was just waiting, if he wondered if it would come up or if somehow this could be forgotten and just moved beyond. Too many powerful events had already taken place and you know, the encounters with the risen Lord. Simon, son of John, Now, that's a formal way of addressing Peter, uh, which would have taken him back a little bit. Um, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Well, more than who? More than what? More than the fishing business? I don't think so. Uh, More than the disciples? Now, that is what may be the question. Peter, are you still comparing your love for me to everybody else's love for me? Are you still drawing that kind of comparison? Are you still seeing yourself in a superior mode to others in their response? Are you still being self-righteous in how you are responding to me? Do you love me more than these? The word for love 
this is one of the debates, I guess, on, on John. Is, is John just using love, agape, filio, synonymously? doesn't make any difference. But Jesus uses the word agape, which is usually connotates a more serious God-given love. And filio, usually a more natural, human kind of love. So Jesus asked, do you agape me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, I guess Jesus could have confronted Peter very directly by saying, why did you deny me three times? Especially after your proud boast that even if everybody else falls away, you will not. It's interesting the psychology of this, this confrontation, because it is a very gentle, uh, a very constructive way that Jesus is approaching Peter's denials and a process of forgiveness and redemption and moving forward. Catherine? Yeah. I just wonder, each time I read this passage, when Jesus asks uh, Peter this question, maybe that Jesus is asking uh, the agape kind of love, whereas Peter is answering the filial type of love. Is that mean? I don't think it's the agape love that Peter is answering at this point. I'm not sure he's got it yet. Do you think? I mean that. Yeah, I don't see. I see a humility on Peter's part in responding with filio rather than agape. Mm -hmm. That um, he's not claiming something large now in his response to to Jesus. Do you agape me? And Peter says, you know I filio you. Um, to the best that Peter can do, he's responding to Jesus. So I see it more as a sign of humility rather than a resistance in, at all on Peter's part to say, well, no, I'm not up there yet, um, or I haven't been given something yet in order to love you more. Uh, it's either that, I think, or John doesn't really care and he's using this, he's using different words to to do color uh, for the passage. Um, but if there is a significance, I think it points to Peter's humility here. rather. And at the end, Jesus will say on the third one, do you filio me? So Jesus uses the term. Uh, but obviously we're going to have to speculate on that because we're not told uh, the significance of it. Uh, this is just- 
confirmed by anybody or anything, but I've always just projected myself into that. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking that pre-Holy Spirit, there's no way I could have answered agape. Yeah, I, you know, in John 20, he's given the the spirit. You don't have Pentecost yet, I, I know, but in John 20, the the spirit's there. Uh, I just hesitate to read into it that much. I'm reading humility on Peter's part, uh, especially after what he did. Uh, I try to summarize on number three, and let me just. Uh, Let's use that paragraph really quickly uh, under a modest message. Peter's response to Jesus' question raises three important observations. First, his love for the Lord is no longer measured in comparison to others. He puts his old, immature comparisons behind him. His love is no longer competitive. And that certainly is a mark of spiritual maturity, right? When you stop loving the Lord as a comparison to others and looking around, uh, Peter did that, now he's not. Number two, second, his love for the Lord does not rely on his own self-confidence, but on the Lord's understanding of him. Now the motivation isn't coming so much from, from him, but the Lord knows. And that's repeated multiple times. And then three, the Aramaic word for the Lord, the Lord used for love was translated in the Greek as agape, and the word Peter used in response was translated filio. Of the two Greek words for love, agape has the deeper meaning. It refers to a love that's given by God, a love beyond our natural capacity to create. Philia is a more natural love that is more evident in friendship and affection. And Peter is wanting to have a humble claim rather than an arrogant claim. That's my take on it. But again, we're just we're having to read this. But... Don, what you're doing is what I want us to do. I want us to put ourselves into the dialogue and into the scene. And I want us to hear Jesus ask us, do you love me? Do you love me? And then I think it's just as appropriate for Jesus to say to us, as he did to the apostles, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. He doesn't say... And dropping down now to the, the modest proposal, he does not say lead an army or launch a crusade or compete with Rome or even build my kingdom. Just feed my sheep. I don't know as if our job, as if our vision or a job or a mission rises above that. On every level, that's what our aim ought to be the building up of the body of Christ through the word of God in the spirit of Christ. Uh, Feed my sheep is sort of the the marching orders and the mission statement uh, and the encouragement for uh, the body of Christ. Oswald Chambers has a great line. This is under number one of the the modest proposal. And I like this line. uh, Identify yourself with my interests and other people. Don't identify me with your interests in other people. Um, to tie that in, I could have used that last week with Zacchaeus. Remember the point I made that Jesus' concern for Zacchaeus was his soul, not using his resources. 
And sometimes in the church engaged in the Jesus business, we see a wealthy person. We don't see so much his soul, his spiritual need, as we see him as deep pockets that can be a resource for the church. Chambers' one-liner is helpful to remember. Identify, identify yourself with my interests in other people. Don't identify me with your interests in other people. This, and this is one of the reasons why I said Peter may have been more interesting in a humanistic level before the resurrection, because after the resurrection, Peter's proposals are modest. If you read 1 Peter 5, where he talks about uh, his co-elders, his co-shepherds, uh, it's right out of this passage of feeding the sheep, uh, of shepherding the flock. Uh, it's not heroic. It's not spectacular. It's really down to earth. Now, in verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, if you were making an observation about that phrase, follow me, what might it be? What comes to your mind? After all this, after all the teaching, all the experience, all that they had endured and gone through, this is the first word of the gospel. This was the first thing that Jesus said to him. What a, you know, we talk about inclusios, you know, good sermons oftentimes start with something and they end with it as well. They kind of include everything in between. And this phrase, follow me, it doesn't get, it doesn't get more complicated than that. It remains that. Uh, life for Peter is not going to get any easier. Is it? It's going to get harder. Um, now, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I wouldn't say Peter at, or the, any of the apostles felt they were living a tragic life. I think they felt they were living a joyous and fulfilling life, but it didn't get easier. It got harder. And in living the Christian life, there is not a promise here that it's going to be easier. Um, Peter experienced uh, a great deal of difficulty because he was following Christ. Now, we don't know until verse 20 that this is a conversation just between Jesus and Peter. We, we haven't been given the sort of the ex, uh, exit uh, phrase that let us know that they had broken away from breakfast and they were walking down the shoreline uh, Jesus and Peter having this conversation, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Until verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So John's following. And uh, after having just said what he, Jesus said to Peter about the way he was going to die, the, what, the cost, uh, Jesus loved... Uh, 
the disciple whom Jesus loved, following them, and the one who had been reclining at the table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, now this is so, Peter, still, Lord, what about this guy? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter's still concerned comparatively, uh, still wondering about was he getting the same kind of deal that John was going to get and uh, and finding that uh, and Jesus once again having to instruct him, that's really not your business, Peter. Uh, but we do that all the time. We really do as Christians, wondering if God's giving us uh, as good a shake as he's giving somebody else. But Jesus discourages that kind of thinking. Splendor in the ordinary. Breakfast on a beach. Jesus giving us a good indication of what it's going to be like to live into the resurrection. I preached on this text one Easter. And... uh, And... I wrote this in preparation for that sermon, and uh, I'm just going to to read it and then see if it triggers any observation or comment on your part. When seekers come to church, what kind of believers should they expect to find? The best they can find are chastened, humble believers like Peter, who after an encounter with the risen Lord are ready to follow Christ the Jesus way, not their way. They've heard the question, do you love me? And they have said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. They love the Lord with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, and their neighbor as themselves. They are husbands who love their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives who love their husbands the way they love the Lord. Parents who love their children, not as extensions of their alter ego, not as immortality symbols, but as gifts from God. Brothers and sisters in Christ who love one another, not because they belong to the same race or tribe or social strata or cultural background, but because they're one in Christ. These are beatitude-based believers with salt and light impact who practice Sermon on the Mount obedience, love instead of hate, purity instead of lust, fidelity instead of infidelity, honesty instead of dishonesty, reconciliation instead of retaliation, prayer instead of revenge. These believers practice the hidden righteousness of prayer and giving and self-discipline, not to be seen by others, but to be in communion with their Heavenly Father. These modest believers are known for practicing the rhythms of grace, daily worship and prayer, meditating on the word of God, confessing their sins. They love their work, not necessarily their jobs, but God's mission worked out in daily life. They take back the drudgery and boredom of life by investing their lives in obedience and faithfulness. They are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God ordained for them to do. And when they break bread with non-believers, their conversation and friendship point in some ways, maybe subtle ways, 
to the presence of the risen Lord Jesus. These God-dependent believers know that suffering, not success, brings out the best evidence for the resurrection. Quiet faithfulness is their default position when the bottom drops out of their lives. Bedrock trust in God is their sure hope when their loss is overwhelming. Against all the confusion and heartache experienced in the world, they know the reality of amazing grace, not just the song, but the gift of God. They sing, Great is thy faithfulness, not in three stanzas, but over six or seven decades. These are the people who escape the cravings of a gluttonous, overindulged self by building friendships with people in need. They look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep themselves from being polluted by the world. They are followers of the Lamb who go into all the world to share the gospel, and they refuse to be conformed to the pattern of this world. They live by the principle of the cross, my life for yours. No one pays them much attention, but when they have been around, when they have been around them a while, you begin to appreciate their depth. You know they are Christians by their love by their love. And this is what it means to look like our Redeemer. Splendor in the ordinary. A life really living into the resurrection of Christ. It's so interesting um, that oftentimes the evangelical church puts so much energy into Easter Sunday and then church just drops off the map the Sunday after Easter. Um, I think I saw that, that Andrew's preaching the Sunday after Easter as well as Easter. And that's such a good sign. So many pastors take the Sunday after Easter off because they've wiped themselves out, I guess, in the preparation for Easter. But I think and you know, I've practiced this over the years. The Sunday after Easter is just as important, if not more important, because the seeking soul that showed up on Easter and is hungry for more and says to himself or herself, I'll come back next week. That next Sunday is really important for ministering to that soul. Um, so it's the breakfast on the beach Sunday, the Sunday after Easter. And that's where really the, the life and vitality of the church, that ordinary modest believer is God's extraordinary gift to the world. Let's pray. Lord God, thanks for this time. Thank you for the beauty of your encounter with Peter and for your beloved disciple John in the spirit writing it down for us. Please bless us with the, this understanding. Please help it to shape our lives. Together we praise you, and we do pray for the seeking soul that is hungry for you and knowing you, that shows up here at the Advent, and that somehow, by your Spirit, you will speak your gospel of grace into their life. Together we give you thanks. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. 
Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.